when I was awoken to the flick of a light switch, there were my officers in SWAT gear surrounding my bed. Uh, not a good way to wake up. And I said, guys, what are you doing? Come on, we got a meeting at 7.30 in the morning, right? I'm putting on this facade that everything's okay. That's the voice of former police commander Chris Prohut. And things were far from all right. Chris was getting ready to carry out a plan to take his own life. What brought him to this point? And how is he using his story to help law enforcement officers moving forward? He's my guest this week for Mental Health Monday. Mental Health Monday is an informational podcast and should not be used to replace the specialized training and professional judgment of a healthcare or mental health care professional. Mental Health Monday can't be held responsible for the use of the information provided. Please always consult a trained mental health professional before making any decision regarding treatment of yourself or others. Self-help information and podcasts and information on the internet is useful, but it's not always a substitute for professional assistance. Unless otherwise noted, guests of Mental Health Monday are not doctors or licensed in any way. Our hope is to make a connection connection with you and be more open and honest about everyone's mental health. Enjoy the podcast. Did you know that more law enforcement officers die by suicide than being killed in the line of duty? Startling fact, right? What's up? I'm Riggs, host of the Riggs and Alley Morning Show on 103.7 KISS FM in Milwaukee. It's a radio.com station. And this is Mental Health Monday, where we put the men in mental health. And we expect our first responders, police officers, firefighters, EMTs, you know, to be superheroes. We rely on them in times of crisis, car accidents, fires, cardiac arrest, homicides. They're the first ones on the scene, and they see some horrific things. The fact of the matter is, this line of work can cause stress, anxiety, and depression. It can disrupt sleep. It can cause friction with family members, create financial worry, contribute to alcohol abuse, prescription pills. It can lead to a decline in physical health. And for some police officers, these elements can create feelings of isolation and hopelessness and helplessness. All of this can be risk factors for suicide. Specifically this week, talking about law enforcement, though. You might not know the name Chris Prohut, a former commander of the Bolingbrook, Illinois Police Department, but remember a guy named Drew Peterson, who was convicted of murdering his third wife, and then his fourth wife went missing, and is still missing to this day? Uh, Drew Peterson's in prison, by the way. Yeah, Chris Prohut was in charge of helping the department's public image during this huge international story. I won't get into the story and the investigation. That's not what this podcast is about. I'm sure you can find 3,500 different true crime podcasts about the Drew Peterson case. This is Mental Health Monday, putting the men in mental health. So I found a man who dealt with his own mental health, bipolar disorder, in 11 years of and being on the police force, he'd gone from a patrol officer to a commander, the third highest rank in the agency. It all came to a screeching halt. He lost his career because of his mental illness and because of his suicide attempt. Yeah, I was baffled by it too, believe me. How did he pick up the pieces and how he's using his story to positively impact law enforcement officers and train them about looking for signs of depression and getting officers to actually talk about things instead of shoving them down. He now travels the country talking to law enforcement officers about suicide prevention. He's Chris Prohut, and he's my guest this week for Mental Health Monday. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, but I've always wanted to be in radio my entire given life. Chris is the same way. You've always wanted to be a police officer. I did. From age 10, I wanted to be a police officer, like yeah. Ponch and John on Chips. Yeah. Uh, the TV show, not the movie. But right. If you ever saw that. Oh, yeah. And uh, 16, I was a police explorer, moved up, I was an officer, and then I... Sergeant, Lieutenant, Commander by age 36, doing my dream job. Wow. And, you know, certainly in law enforcement, there's there's stresses that you see, there's yeah. internal pressures, and then there's those calls that just sit in your brain. You know, you see things that you can't unsee, and you're trying to process those things, and sometimes they change you, and that's 
what I think happened to me back in 2007. There was a national case where there was a, a missing wife of one of our sergeants, uh, police department in Illinois, and he was the suspect. At that time, I was a press information officer, so we deal with the media and try to so release... You were, the, you were the face of everything. Anything that happened, you were the one they were talking to on the news. Uh, that's right. That's and, awesome. And I, it was. It was fun. I, you know, my kids would say, oh, dad's on TV again. Yeah, there you he know? is. That is exciting, except when it's one of your own, right? Yeah. Um, police never have good news. You know, if you wanted to have good news, you'd be the fireman. They save right. the cats. Yeah. So, you know, the pressure really got to me. I thought that I could change public's perception of our department. And when I couldn't, I failed. And and that was really tough for me. And I think it's tough for a lot of men. You know, we have to be strong. We're the problem solvers. We don't fail. And then moving up through the ranks, you know, I've got my stuff together. Nobody has their stuff together. You know, we put on this face that we're tough. You know, they call it command presence. I'm in charge. Sure. You know, I give help. I don't get help. Yeah. And, you know, three months into this, when this is still going on, that cumulative stress, it changed me and I was done. I was definitely depressed, isolating myself from my family. I actually put it on my family. I'd be charged up at work, but depressed at home. So I thought it was the kids. Yeah. So I'm not going to go home. I'll just keep working. Jenny, my wife, finally said, Chris, you're not being the same. You're not being a dad or a husband. Go and get some help. And of course, well, what good is talk therapy gonna do? Right. Sitting and talk to somebody, how how is that gonna help? Um, But she said, as a birthday gift to me, go and get some help. So I did. And I talked to a counselor, Um, his name was Ben, and I let Ben have it the first hour. You know, just laid into him. Oh, I laid it verbally vomited on the poor guy. Yeah. You "You can't help me. You're not a cop. What good is talk therapy gonna do? Yada, yada, yada. And he was just taking notes. I'm like, the guy doesn't even know what to say. Finally, those last five minutes of that session, he said, Chris, I don't know why you're so angry, and I just want to help you. You get some relief. And I remember thinking, damn, this guy's good. Yeah. He's That's not gonna, what I He didn't want to run away from your problems either. You tried to scare him away, didn't you? Absolutely. You, would, you, were, you didn't want it to work in your brain. Correct. For some reason. You know, because I can fix this on my own. I don't need help because that's a sign of weakness. At least I thought at that time. Did you have issues of this before you became a cop? Like when you were younger? Like when you were growing up? Did any of this happen at home? Like when you were younger? Have you looked back or gone back in your brain? We did look back. We looked back through family history and nope, I'm the first one. Really? Really. So they thought, and they being the doctors, thought that it manifest itself it, it came out maybe it was always there but it came out because of of this event and the official diagnosis did they say do were you given official diagnosis of bipolar yeah, disorder bipolar disorder okay. unfortunately i was misdiagnosed which I, i'm assuming happens a lot with yeah. um generalized design uh, anxiety disorder mm-hmm. and then major depression and you know i was placed on medications unfortunately when you put a person who is suffering with bipolar disorder on an antidepressant alone you can actually throw them into a mania because you're not treating that part so i would go on this roller coaster be put on meds feel better and then tank bipolar disorder is difficult to treat it, it really i've talked to doctors that work with it on a day-to-day basis and they say out of all the out of many of the generalized anxiety disorders that's one of the more difficult ones to kind of tackle because you have the ups and you can almost be a functional human being with bipolar disorder which is scary which is and you can you know it manifests itself in different ways but you can get a lot of stuff done you know in a mania you know they talk about spending and things like that but my mania was angry 
Mm-hmm. So you'd have the depression where you're flat out on the couch. You'd have a good day, and then you'd just be walking out of the police department. This happened to me one day. Great mood. Walk 500 feet and want to rip the door handle off my car and didn't know why. Yeah. And then, of course, if I can't pin it on anything, why do I need to live like this? Well, now you're becoming you know, impulsive, so I'm driving as fast as I can. Come home, Jen's like, great, let's cook steaks. And I'm like, I'm going to bed. That's the way I handled it, trying just to shut my brain off. How far did it go? You said you were helpless at a point. I mean, did you make a plan? I, I absolutely did make a plan. So it was my birthday, and again, I, I went off my meds. I, I was done. In my mind, for four months, I'm doing through talk therapy and all these medications. I'm done. I'm feeling worse. Yeah. And you know, people go off their meds either because they're feeling better or those side effects. And I, I had an awful lot of them. Yeah. So uh, the week of April 17th, in 2008, I said, that's it. Um, I have my firearm. That's how I'm going to take my life. It's going to be in a neighboring town so that my own department doesn't have to investigate my suicide. Um, we had set up a mental health fair on May 1st. So we were finally going to do the debriefing over the big crisis situation that we had. So I knew that there was going to be professionals. So May 1st was the day. And as the commander, I had the keys to all the records for the the police department. So I was studying. I was reading reports and viewing crime scene photos of suicide because it's not normal to take your life. There, there's something no. going on. You, you want to study. You don't want to cause more pain. I want to get it done right. People that are going through this, they don't want to die. They simply want the pain to end, but they can't see any other way out. They've lost all hope, and I, I truly had. And the plan was set. I was in a good mood that week, yeah, which is a big red flag. I was, I was a bounce in my step, you know. I've heard that before with people that are they've made you've made the decision because in your mind you've taken care of everything and Take, you have a way out. You're right, and you're getting things in order. I had uh, cleaned out my desk, you know, everything that wasn't the departments, you know, or that was the departments that stayed there, and I was set. And then my doctor called me and she said, "Why are you saying goodbye?" I said, I'm just going to go. You know, you gave me so many tools. I I can just work this out on my own. Your doctor noticed you said goodbye when you normally would say something else? <laughs> yes. What, do you, what were you normally saying to your doctor? Why are you doctor? saying goodbye? What do you I'm normally fine, say? Right? I'm fine. I'm fine. I can handle it. You've given me the tools. You know, I'll work my way through it. And then she literally asked, how are you doing? And I did say, I'm fine. She said, I don't believe you. I want to talk to your wife. And then I was like, oh, no. Right, I'm losing control. The cat's out of the bag. And she had spoken with Jenny. And I came home from work that day. And I was scared because Jenny wanted to talk. And, of course, I didn't. And she figured out somewhat of what was going to happen. And she said, fine, Chris, if you kill yourself, I'm going to kill myself too. And then who's going to take care of the kids? And I said, I already thought about that in the will. She goes, the will? What will? So now the plan is really unraveling. Now she's like, oh, we're at this point that the doctor had just told me about if I ever get to this point. Um, I handled that by trying to go to bed. That night I I said, all right, I'm done. I'm just going to, you know, I've got some things to still get in order. Yeah. And I hadn't slept in months. Did she find your firearm and get rid of that at any point? When I did fall asleep, um, she hid my gun. Uh, She made the call. And when I was awoken... Two hours later, to the flick of a light switch, there yeah. were my officers in SWAT gear surrounding my bed. Uh, not a good way to wake up. No. 
And I said, guys, what are you doing? Come on, we got a meeting at 7.30 in the morning, right? I'm putting on this facade that everything's okay. Still. Still. Even being surrounded by that. <laughs> yes. And knowing that you made all of these plans. And <laughs> knowing that you're lying blatantly to your wife. You uh, still yes. said you were okay. Right. Because I, I was told that I was two people that day. You know, I yeah. had this, this fake thing and then this internal, I'm dying here, guys. See it. I won't say it, but you got to see it. Mm-hmm. And when I went down, uh, down to the, uh, the living room, my chief was there. And in Illinois at that time, you couldn't go to a mental health facility without losing your gun. They have what's called a firearm owner identification card. Is that they, almost like a red flag law in a sense? Yes, in a sense. Okay. And as soon as you go in, you lose that. If I lose my gun, I'm gonna lose my job. I'm not going to the hospital. And you know, I tell officers, you know, you don't have those laws because that's a huge barrier. Yeah. And he said, Chris, we're worried about you. We'll worry about the gun later. And, um, you know, I was in the best shape of my life during that time. I had just trained for and ran in the Chicago Marathon. Yeah. A new plan had evolved in my head that um, I'm not gonna go to that hospital. So I, I put on my running shoes and began to stretch my hamstrings, not thinking that they would notice because I'm gonna run. Where? West sounded like a good direction, right? With like Forrest Gump. <laughs> yes, right. Run, run, Chris. <laughs> just run. start running. <laughs> yes, just start running. Okay. I, I came to find out later that they had set up an inner perimeter and an outer perimeter around my house because they knew Chris is a runner. If he gets out the door, we're going to have to chase him or, yeah. or send the dogs. And so they had planned for you. They did. They did. <laughs> and you know, I felt terrible. Like, look what I've put you guys through. And they said, Chris, it's just the opposite. We were calling officers off. The whole department was coming to your house to help you. Yeah. You know, and, and that I didn't want your help, guys. So I did get in the ambulance. I was taken to the hospital. And after 15 days, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Yeah. And uh, it was like, what? <laughs> you know, but now I have to get back to work. And it was difficult. I had to get my gun back. I had mm-hmm. to go through a lot of treatment. I had to get a note from my doctor. And at that time, they said, Chris, you probably should go for a pension, a disability pension. And the pension board, they got it right. They said, Chris, you're not disabled. Your only disability is your inability to carry a firearm. Mm-hmm. And I tried to get that back. And the state police said, nope. No and gun. And you were, right, no gun. Because you were a patient in a mental health facility. It's interesting to say disabled. I have, a, I have a friend that's a veteran that's also a disabled veteran, but uh, because of the mental issue and as well, that... PTSD can classify you as a disabled veteran. And you think disabled, if I hear disabled, I think you're in a wheelchair, you can't walk, you have loss of your limbs, you can't see, you can't hear. That's what I think is disabled. But we need to, I guess we're evolving to that point now where you can also be mentally disabled as well, where they don't think that you can have a firearm. Do you feel that that's fair, that that, that they take away someone's firearm if they're in that state, honestly, at your core? In, in that state, yes. So that night, I... I had been on enough calls. I'd taken firearms away from mm-hmm. individuals who were suicidal. And and yes, I mean, that's the most you know used means. So at that point, when you are in crisis, they should take away that firearm. Yeah. I was trying to get my firearm back after nine months of therapy. At that time, I really believed that I could have a firearm back. I, I, you know, I was progressing. I could do the job. Yeah. They said no. And they said no, because I was a patient in a mental health facility for the last five years, which I started scratching my head going, well, as long as I stay out of the hospital for five years, 
apparently I'm okay then. So, right. you know, we create these laws with these un, unintended consequences. Yeah. So, you know, in my presentations when I do these these talks to officers, they understand at that time they're going to probably take your gun, but it's not going to be a career ender. And I've met plenty of officers that have struggled, that have been impatient, and they say, Chris, I... I went through the very same thing. I, I'm bipolar. I, you know, have been working three years like this, but I have the support from my department, and my officers know maybe to check on me a little bit more. Yeah. And I go, how come I wasn't afforded that? And you know what? I finally realized that maybe by sharing my own story, I'm saving more lives now than I could have ever done on the street. Exactly. So this is you changed then from being an officer and being on the street. That's correct. To now going and helping officers themselves. Right, which is is very humbling yeah. when uh, you get invited and there's four officers. I'm sorry, forty officers that maybe don't want to be in this class because it's not cool, right? It's not firearms training, right? But mental health, and we're talking about you. Well, I don't have problems. Well, it's the only training that after the two hours, um, there's hugs and there's tears. Mm -hmm. Yes, police officers cry because Good. behind the badge they're all human, right? Yes. So we really break it down into that human factor and they start remembering these things that they've stuffed down because we're really good at that suck it up attitude, mm -hmm. right? And when you start stirring that pot afterwards, they, they I've had officers find me in the parking lot and they go, that was good. Um, I need to talk. Yes, you do. That's good. That's good. And I tell people, Get help early and often. You know, my 12-year-old my Ashlyn, she's my daughter, and she was running through the house. I'm chasing her with Nerf guns, shooting her in the butt with a dart, and yeah. she's trying to get away, right? And she rounds the corner of the couch a little bit too tight, smashes her toes right into the leg of the couch. Ugh. It hurts. Usually 2.30 in the morning when you got to pee, right? That's when it happens. Yeah. And she's on the ground crying. And I'm like, honey, honey. She's like, oh, Dad, it hurts. Dad, it hurts. Go get Mom. Well, they always ask for Mom, right? Because Mom can make it better than Of Dad. course. And I'm looking at her going, at what point when we were growing up did it become not okay to ask for help? Yeah. Because you know, as soon as I would walk out of this room, smash my toe into a cabinet, I'd be limping around, uh -huh. holding it all in, because I need to be tough, yelling at myself. Yeah. Can't you be more careful? Blaming That's yourself for that. Right? Yeah. Do you th uh, and then you got men as well on top of it. Oh, men goodness. are already stubborn as it is. That's right. As we said earlier, men suck at talking about their feelings. So how do you break down that barrier between you got men and police officers? Right. What do you do to break down that barrier so that they open up to you? Well, I talk straightforward. You know, you don't beat around the bush. You know, are you, are you feeling sad or whatever? You go right towards it. And, and jokes usually work too. So one of the things that I do is we present how many officers die by suicide, and nobody really knows the answer. Yeah. But it's anywhere from two to three times more likely to take your own life than to die in a car crash or at the hands of a suspect. Yeah. But we don't talk about it. So signing up to being an officer, you're more likely to die from your own hand than someone else. Yes. So if there's a shock value to that, like, oh, how am I doing? But kind of the, the comedy thing is I say, guys, you only have 2,000 words that you can use a day. See, women have 7,000, and don't we hear them all? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the internal protective factor that women have. Yeah. They talk. Yes. So I give them permission, an extra 1,000 words that they can use a day that maybe they'll include the phrase, that call sucked, I can't sleep. Mm -hmm. You know, every time I smell that smell or go through that intersection, I'm brought right back there. 
There is nothing wrong with you. And don't compare yourself to how other officers on that scene are acting. You know, well, well, Riggs seems like he just made it through fine. He looks fine. What's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Nothing, because we all process stress differently. And I keep using that underlying theme of talk. I'm not selling some million-dollar program. Yeah. But you have to be vulnerable. And vulnerability doesn't sit well in law enforcement. We train how not to be vulnerable, right? Because vulnerability gets us hurt. Sure. That doesn't work with your mental health. And they go, well, Chris, I mean, talk therapy. I said, did you know, listening to my voice right now, your brain is changing. You're making different connections. Mm-hmm. You're remembering this and this. That's how it works. How do you feel about uh, how John Q. Public would perceive police and dealing with their own mental health? Do you think people would be afraid that there are police out there that are pushing down their feelings, or would they be more at ease knowing that cops are talking about their mental health? How do you mm-hmm. think the public feels about that? Like somebody like you coming out and telling them it's okay to be vulnerable. Right, so I think I think communities that have officers that are open with their own struggles are very well equipped to handle those in the public who are dealing with their own mental struggles. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, if I was talking to someone and I was a police officer and they're saying, I'm not taking my meds because of the side effects. Well, what are you on? This. You know what? I'm on that too. You know what? I've, I'm seeing a therapist right now. Mm-hmm. Really? I thought you had it all together. And then you have that conversation. Yeah. Um, no. You know, again, behind that badge, I'm, I'm human just like you are. And I would want my officers in the town that I lived in as healthy as possible. You know what? And if that includes medication or talk therapy, so be it. Mm-hmm. Rather than an officer struggling, going out on the street, not getting help, making the decisions that he has to make. I'd rather have today Chris than bipolar Chris showing up at a burglary thing. You know, is he going to be angry today? Right. What happened to him before? That's correct. Right? And you know what? I mean, that's the stigma, right? Yeah. And that's where we're fighting against, and we're going to only break it by normalizing it. Yeah. You know, anywhere from stats from one in six adults to one in four adults, it's out there. Mm-hmm. All right. We need to talk about it. It's in our departments. And if you think about the things that the officers can, they see on a daily basis. Everything is gray, everything is bad, right? I'm working long hours, maybe I'm drinking too much to try to self-medicate. The divorce rate is is terrible. I bet. And you know what? With all the stress you're dealing with on your job, you're seeing the worst of humanity a lot of times. Every day, and every time that radio crackles, it's somebody in the the crisis of their life and you Mm -hmm. have to try to solve that. And you have to do it with a calm, steady head. See, I'm not worried about the officers who go on the bank robbery, right? Because they train for that. What I'm concerned about is what they're doing at home, trying to shut their brains off and process that. And they got to get up, you know, in six hours and do this all over again because they're working a double shift because they're short staffed. They never have the time to process that. Are they putting more programs like yours in place in like Milwaukee Police Department where officers can have these open conversations about, all right, we had these awful calls today. Let's talk about how we felt about these. Who's shook up about this? Who needs to talk about whatever? Are things like this happening? Yeah. So big changes, I would say, in the last 10 years with peer support. You know, we talked earlier about. Well, I'll talk to another officer because he's walked the walk. Yeah. So that's what peer support is all about. Sure. I'll talk to these vetted officers who have a vested interest in helping other officers, and they have 24-hour hotlines. Matter of fact, the Milwaukee Police Department, just like you said, they have a police officer support team. It's called POST. So officers, and you don't even have to be at the Milwaukee Police Department. It's any officer. Because any you officer know around the country? Absolutely. Just law enforcement We're a family. Yeah. Yes. 
And there are departments, uh, you know, unfortunately, New York, I think they lost about 10 officers to suicide. God. And they have doctors and counselors. They even have an app on their phone that you can see the counselor and hit their number and, and talk to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been interviewed for those things. You know, we have all these resources. And I asked them, do you have a culture of care that it's okay to talk? Because if you're not willing to talk, you're not going to yeah. push the button. Exactly. Or if you fear, like I did, that you're going to lose your job if I open up. Because guys will keep secrets on other guys mm-hmm. just so that they don't lose their job. And I tell them, you have to save the life first. Mm-hmm. The job comes second. But that becomes their identity. You know, I am Sergeant Prohut. That's how mm-hmm. you get introduced at yeah. you know a neighborhood block party. You never hear, hey, this is Dave the dentist. Right. Oh, I hate Dennis. You know, why did you invite him? <laughs> right. So any threat to that? No, no, I'm not going to lose who I am. And that's really why I wouldn't go too. Mm-hmm. That's who I am. That's my soul. And when they took my badge that night, I died. You know? Oh, look what you've been given now. What you've given yourself. Yes. And you may, that's a great point. You have to be around for it to get better. You never know where this is going to lead. Mm-hmm. But if you take your life, it's, it's never going to get better. You're doing a permanent solution to that temporary problem that everybody says. Yes. But in that person's mind... It's never going to get better. So what in your mind? Was there something that flipped a switch that made you decide that wasn't the decision for you? You had gone through all the planning earlier. You talked (laughs) about how you had lined up the will. You had written letters. You Mm -hmm. had picked the day. You had arranged where it was going to happen, everything. What At what point did it switch in your mind to go, life is the better choice. There is light. So it would have to be in the hospital. You know, I really didn't have, I didn't have time to carry out the plan. The plan was basically made that day, and then all of a sudden it it leaked out. Um, But when I went to the hospital for the first three, four days, I don't belong here. You know, I put people here. I'm better than them. And finally, by day six or seven, I realized that's the best, safest place that I could have been. So it is going to that counseling, um, the group sessions, recognizing that you're not alone. Um, The things that you're feeling... You know, you believe that the they've never been felt in the history of mankind, right? You mm-hmm. know, you're, and then you find no, I'm just like you, or the, I call it the no kidding, me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've gone through that same thing. Exactly. So then it can be treated. Oh, well, you're doing much better. I, I can get there. So that hope finally gets restored. And somebody used the acronym for hope is hold on, pain, pain ends. ends. And that's great. It's a good one. That is great. I'm glad you know that one too. I do. So what is your mission now? Like, what do you, where, what's the next steps for you? Now you've obviously you've got, you've handed me, like, I've got a movie I've got to watch now, which <laughs> looks amazing. I've watched, you know, stories on you. Now what's, uh, what's your mission now? What are you carrying forward? Just to spread your story and to talk to as many officers as you can? Yes. Some, you know, this was never my plan. I was supposed to be the chief of police and life took a hard left. Mm-hmm. And it has taken me several years to realize, okay, this is this is the new plan in your life. So yes, it's to talk to as many officers. And you know, I've talked to 250 people and I've talked to a class of 10. And I always tell myself, the people who are in that room need to hear this. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing special about me. I'm just using what I've been through. Just like you said, it gives instant credibility. He's been there. And also, I think it's unique that I would like a story where I could tell them that everything went well, right? I got my, you know, my, didn't affect my marriage. Mm-hmm. I saved my house. I didn't have to file for bankruptcy. And I'm still a cop. So I went through their greatest fears. Chris, you lost everything. But you know what? My kids still have their dad. 
Mm-hmm. And you watched it as her husband, too. And that's right. And that is all that matters. Mm-hmm. So just touching as many officers as I can. Yeah. That's really my mission. Well, it's great work that you do for a very deserving population that protect us every single day. They put on that badge and they put on that face. Sometimes they have to put on the face to get through the call. But at the end of the day, it's good to know that they have people like you or someone around them they can talk to to debrief and decompress all of that. Chris, yes. thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. I Thanks really appreciate it. No, thank you for what you do. I appreciate you coming on a podcast. It's good to have another man, another ally in the mental health fight, especially in the law enforcement side. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You can find out more about Chris and the work that he does at his website, talk2endstigma.com. Talk2endstigma.com. This has been Mental Health Monday, putting the men in mental health. It's a Riggs Off the Radio podcast. I'm Riggs, and I'll talk to you next time for Mental Health Monday. Enjoy the rest of your day, your night, your weekend, your afternoon, whatever you're doing. And remember, make good life decisions.